rediscovered route of the Mackay Expedition, 1860, so ended a remarkable career of a man whom the government had seen fit to retain as departmental head well past the normal retiring age, even to the point of asking him to withdraw his resignation two years earlier, tended when one of his official recommendations was rejected by the government. Although he worked to the end of his life, McKay's early years were far from sheltered. At the age of only 20 he set out on an expedition, the aim of which was to explore northward for grazing land. In completing that task he discovered the richest tract of sugarcane country in Queensland and then returned to become the district's first settler. He discovered the port which today bears his name yet he came by land, not sea, and the entrance to the port was so obscure that the first ship he commissioned to enter the port sailed past oblivious of the river mouth. John Mackay returned as the district's first settler but resided there a few months. He did not visit Mackay for twenty more years, by then a stranger in the district he discovered. His only reward for his exploits was to lose the land he had taken up, have his discovery attributed to another and his request for a land grant passed by Parliament, belittled by the ignorant and rejected when a new government came to power. But as well as paradox, a mystery surrounds his discovery, a mystery only recently revealed by detailed examination of the early records including those held by the society. It is interesting to recall that John Mackay was a foundation member of this society and on its first council. All the accounts of his exploration published for a period of 80 years are quite incorrect both as to date and as to the route of the journey. Mackay was no Leichhardt in fact he recorded his admiration for that, noble, explorer and had no better map than based on Leichhardt's exploration to guide him. Yet mystery surrounds him because the accounts puffshed since 1891 attributed to Mackay and not contradicted as to their authenticity are extraordinarily inaccurate. To understand how this occurred, we must go back another 30 more years, to 1882. On the 26th of October, John Stevenson moved in the Legislative Assembly that 1,000 acres of agricultural land be granted to John Mackay, by way of consideration for his discovery at the heads of the Pioneer River and Port Mackay. Stevenson, who was member for Normanby, said he had been thinking of such action for ten years but feared such a move would result in a flood of applications. He told members that the recent grant to Landsborough in 1880 had persuaded him to take action on Mackay's behalf. Mackay, he said, had determined that it shall be my last attempt to establish my claim to compensation. In his letter, Mackay went on to add that, as for a government billet, a man, to successfully fill most of them, must be trained. And what could I be? A haber master there are none to be had. And it is the only berth I could assert myself capable of filling. Despite some questioning as to the special significance of Mackay's achievement, the motion passed. Carrot after twenty years at sea, Mackay returned to Australia to begin a new settled HFE. Stevenson's intentions were noble, but to no avail since the governor, in council, was now precluded from making such grants. A special act was required. While the Legislative Assembly agreed to amend his motion to grant leave to introduce a bill, it was now late in the session. 
when the McElraith government was forced to the people over the issue of land grants for the construction of the transcontinental railway from Roma to the Gulf, it fell. The new ministry headed by Griffith was not sympathetic. TWO later moves to propose a land grant in 1887 and 1896 also failed when opposed by the government of the day. Carrot. So Mackay returned to Queensland to find no land waiting for him. But there was a government billet available, exactly in the terms he prescribed. John Mackay was appointed harbour master at Cooktown on 12 July 1883. There was little to do but accept. It was hard to set De down to a largely sedentary occupation despite his 44 years. Cooktown was still a busy port, but in decline, as the alluvial gold on the Palmer ran out and the hopes of a permanent prosperity based on deep quartz mining 72 failed to materialize. For a man of McKay's ability and energy Cooktown was a dead end of frustration. To his friend John Cook of Ballingowan Station, who had succeeded across the river at Mackay from where he had failed, Mackay wrote soon after his arrival at Cooktown, I wish to goodness I had that long-promised grant. I never was so miserable in all my life. With time on his hands, Mackay read the parliamentary record, and fumed at the ignorance of those who belittled his achievement. Having failed in Parliament, he would tell the people of the real hardship of his expedition. Mackay re-read the aging pages of his journal and composed the words so well repeated. O.F. The subsequent publication, titled, Discovery of the Pioneer River, Q. Ferguson's Bibliography of Australia lists only one copy, in the Dixon Collection of the State Library of N.E.W. South Wales. Carrot candidly, Mackay admitted that his narrative was in reply to criticism that it was hard to see that much credit is due to him for the discovery of a small river like the Pioneer. Survey there would be no difficulty. So, though in consequence of the dilapidated state of a portion of my journal I may be unable to adhere strictly to the truth, as regards dates and matters of minor detail, the narrative otherwise throughout is a plain unvarnished tale. W.E. shall see later how the desire to demonstrate the difficulty of his original journey which I am sure none of us would doubt after reading the true version has obscured the real achievement. Cooktown is a beautiful place, but it is dangerous to stay too long. Nevertheless, Mackay stayed seven years, married, carried out his duties faithfully, and located the site of Cook's guns. WHEN he was promoted to the position of Harbour Master, Brisbane, in 1889 he was given a warm farewell. John Mackay was born at Bona Bridge, Scotland, on 26 March 1839, the third child of George Mackay and his wife Anne, née Munro, and educated at the Free Church Academy, Inverness. The Mackay home, named Blanafoyk, was in a rural setting, but John's chief interest was not in the land. When he was 15 the family emigrated, arriving in Melbourne on N.E.W. Year's Day 1854 on the sailing ship Australia after a 19-week voyage from Liverpool. Travelling on to Sydney on the South Carolina, George Mackay took his family to the New England district, to Ness Farm near Urala, an area where many Scots settled, finding the country productive and the climate more to their taste than the warm, humid coastal country.
John Mackay had already acquired a love for the sea his boyhood experiences included boating on Loch Ness and journeys to Holland. And the Baltic ports in the schooner owned by his uncle Rainy Munro. Only his parents object and stopped him from going to sea as soon as his schooling was finished. In N.E.W. South Wales he was resdus. Like many others he sought treasure on the gold diggings at the Rocky River, only a few miles from Urala. The talk around the campfires was of adventure not to sea, but into the unexplored north of the colony. There the sons of the N.E.W. England settlers might fulfill their ambitions to have land of their own. John Macrossan, a native of Northern Ireland who had emigrated in 1840, organized the party. He assembled a team of young men with enthusiasm and willing to contribute. I am getting a party together to go out north on an exploration expedition, he wrote to Andrew Murray, and knowing you to be good bushmen and horsemen, wish to invite you to join my party. Each member will find his own outfit, and bear his own expenses, and sharing equally in any country we may find. Besides Macrossan and Mackay, wanted for his ability to navigate from the stars, there was Donald Cameron, a native of Fort William, Inverness Shire, then notable for his height, 5 feet 11 inches, John Muldoon from Northern Ireland, a mate of Cameron's on the diggings, Giovanni Barbary, a quiet Italian carpenter who adopted the name John Barber, and three native-born Australians, Andrew Murray, Hamilton Robinson, and Duke, a son of King Brady and Queen Mary Anne of the Salisbury tribe, born on the 7th of October 1839. Each man provided two horses and provisions but Macrossan, as sponsor, provided 14 horses as well as maintaining Duke. The party had a lengthy journey to Rockhampton before exploration began, leaving Armadale with 28 horses, pack saddles, guns and ammunition, on the 16th of January 1860. The first few miles were tiresome, several horses bolting and throwing their packs. After delaying for the Glen Innes races on 19 January, they moved north into the new colony of Queensland. They stayed in camp on the first Sunday out, a practice they maintained when practicable. Muldoon distributed what Murray described as useful rageous tracts. Reaching Quartpot Creek, the future site of Stanthorpe, the party treated themselves to breakfast at the Bartley Rose Inn on 26 January. Not cheap for those days, two shillings each and all drinks a shilling. We tried to have value for our money, said Murray, and, when most else on the table had disappeared, Mackay had a bottle of pickles, and was deliberately eating away at him, which earned him the nickname, Pickles. He tried the salad oil too, but finding it unpalatable, the party took HTTLE to oil their saddles. The welcome downs followed the rugged granite belt as Mackay and his mates travelled to Drayton and Westerly to Dolby and Jimbor, living off turkeys, pigeons and ducks to supplement their rations. They were just sitting down to dinner at Jimbor when lightning suddenly struck a tree only a few feet from the tent. Then about nine o'clock, they heard some of their horses galloping away towards Dolby. Instantly alert, they rose and apprehended one Baxter unhobbling the remainder. Muldoon and Duke drove back the horses while Murray and Mackay led the culprit back to camp. 
Unwilling to delay and attend the nearest police court, we used other means of punishment, so, after disfiguring his locks considerably, which were rather prepossessing for a man of his profession, we let him go and saw no more of him. The party now followed the road to Gainda. Grass was scarce and so the horses had to be watched all night, then they encountered the discomfort of heavy rain. Together now for a month, some minor irritations surfaced. Although, but little spirits were indulged in, wrote Murray, every shout. Cost eight shillings. Cameron and Murray had strong views on the liquor question and objected to being, as it were, victimized. They bought a bottle of raspberry cordial at one of the station stores and, going ahead, had a drink whenever they came to water. After that, the explorers seldom pulled up at the hotels along the road. Carrot. Reaching Gainda on the 26th of February, Murray met his old mate John Bell. Now he stayed at the hotel while his mate's camped Bell was buying 500 head of cattle from Waller, a hard deal which ended in his favor on the strength of his playing the violin to Mr. Waller's satisfaction and singing a few songs, aided by a member of the force. Bell then persuaded Murray to drive the stock to his station at Port Curtis. It was now the Queensland wet season, and with 500 cattle as well as flooded creeks to contend with, they did well to reach Stowe Station by the 22nd of March. On the 4th of March they had reached Jin Jin, A. H. Brown's Station. Murray got a yard for the cattle, a dry suit and, with John Bell, stayed in comfort at Mrs. Brown's British Lion Hotel, leaving his mates camped on the opposite side on Jin Jin Creek. Carrot. The campers ran out of food and next day a blackfellow had to be induced to swim across with Tucker, on his head to keep it dry. On the 6th of March, Muldoon and Duke located a decaying white cedar log from which, wrote Mackay, about sundown we had finished one of the roughest pieces of naval architecture ever constructed but found, on launching her, that she floated tolerably well. However to Murray's amusement, the boat had no keel and as soon as it was launched, the boat was on top and the passengers under where the keel should be. Barber, who was chief builder, lashed some of the unused log to the sides, and next day Macrossan successfully paddled the frail craft across and returned with welcome provisions. The rain continued and they were delayed at the Colan while at Baffle Creek, Coliseum Creek and the Boyne the provisions were rafted while the animals swam. When they reached Holt's Cullier station a bullock was killed. Three weeks earlier Mackay had in ignorance bet Murray a sovereign that the bullock's spinal marrow went under, not through the backbone. With proof now at hand, Murray, who apparently had not the same strong feeling about gambling as he had about spirits, pressed Mackay for the sovereign commenting that hardly surprising it was provided, with not very good grace. Carrot. Robert and James Bell, former N.E.W. Englanders, made the travellers welcome at Stowe Station. On the 22nd of March, the 23rd according to Murray, Mackay, Macrossan, Robinson and Cameron rode into the port of Gladstone for a couple of days. Neither account mentioned that on the 26th of March, Mackay had his 21st birthday. Perhaps Mackay told no one of this event. 
After a week at Port Curtis they reached Rockhampton on 2 April 1860 and camped on a small creek within half a mile of town. Rockhampton was but a village, still showing the scars of its explosion into prominence and rapid demise two years previously when the Canoona Gold Rush caught the imagination of fortunes seeking Sydney ciders. Mackay was surprised to find all their needs for the expedition available far cheaper than they had bought them in NEW England. But he was greatly disappointed when it came to buying the navigation instruments he expected to find at a port, being unable to procure even a pair of dividing compasses. Mackay had the frustration of relying on dead reckoning when he had the knowledge to plot his position from the sun and the stars. TWO compasses, Landsberg's map and a copy of Leichhardt's travels in northern Australia was all they had to guide them. Two weeks were spent in Rockhampton, jerking beef preparing strips of dried and cured meat for the journey and packing provisions. They left with 800 weight of flour, 400 kilos, 300 pounds of beef, 20 pounds of tea, 10 pounds of coffee, 140 of sugar and a dozen tins of crushed oats. Each man carried five pounds of powder, two hundred bullets, eight pounds of shot and three boxes of caps, both for protection and to supplement their dry rations. They travelled only three miles the first day before camping by the Fitzroy. The horses proved intractable with their heavy packs, bolting and throwing them. Barber also known as Chips fell from his horse, injuring his arm. Next morning Macrossan went back to Rockhampton for more pack saddles. McKay's newspaper account does not mention that Cameron pulled out either he or the newspaper editor cared not to mention what Murray maintained resulted from a disagreement with Mackay. Cameron was only recently married. Murray lamented that, my most reliable old mate was gone. Finally on the 20th of April they reached the river at Yamba. While the horses swam, the stores were kept dry by means of a boat provided by the local hotelier. The picks, shovels and gear even a stove that lined the road to Canoona reminded them of the miners' dejected trudge back to Rockhampton. Twelve miles yet from Princester, Muldoon fell ill with fever and deemed it prudent to return. The last of Murray's mates was now gone. They reached Henning's embryo Marlborough station on the 28th of April, the last outpost they saw as they turned inland. Leaving on the Monday after a Sabbath rest, they travelled ten miles southwest, camping on a small running creek and shot some duck and a pigeon for dinner. Along the creek they saw where natives had been boiling shellfish and the night watches were begun, Murray and Robinson first, Barber and Duke, the middle watch, while Macrossan and Mackay shared the cold tedious morning watch. Next day in rougher country the horses again threw their packs. Camp was made on what Mackay referred to as Apis Creek, within sight of the Isaacs Range, in fine forest country. Next day the ridges became rough and steep, and Murray and Duke climbed a high peak to select the best route. Starting early on the 3rd of May, they found a convenient pass to the north and about 1 p.m. passed into the catchment of the Isaacs. Their intention of reaching the river next day was thwarted by a dense scrub what today we are more likely to call rainforest, and so they continued north, equidistant from scrub and range and intrigued with the curious appearance of the bottle tree. Still unable to reach the river, 
they traveled on Sunday 6 May. The frequent fires and indications of the local aborigines hovering around and watching them made it imprudent to delay. Soon the scrub closed in as they searched for a crossing. The only solidon was to cut down a tree. It fell as intended but in the descent got entangled in the branches of a tree on the opposite bank. Duke immediately went up to disentangle it, an act which nearly had fatal consequences as he got jammed between the heavy branches but luck. Ily rode it down unhurt. After the tedious job of carrying the stores across the tree and swimming the horses and reloading, they camped about two miles from the river and were irritated all night by sandflies. At last the going became easier, traversing fine open timbered box flats, but the COEs kept them ever mindful they were intruders. For a week they made good progress, occasionally crossing the river when the going looked easier on the other side, not always with good results as on the 10th of May when they crossed to the east only to find a great mass of swamp covered with long spear grass which cut the horses' legs and greatly harassed them. They were also confused by the numerous tributaries not marked on the map. Two days later was the first face-to-face -face encounter with the local inhabitants, fortunately an amicable one. Previously the aborigines had kept out of sight but on the 12th of May about 2 p.m. the explorers surprised a party returning to camp from a fishing excursion. Mackay, Robinson and Macrossan rode towards them and the natives, evidently seeing mounted horsemen for the first time, fled, carrying their children on their backs and leaving their war implements behind. Mackay and his party left brass buttons, a cotton handkerchief, a yard of calico, a reel of white thread and a needle as presents for them. Mackay did not speculate on the possibility that their fear resulted from the knowledge rather than the ignorance of white men and the deeds. On the 14th of May they camped near the entrance of a large sandy creek coming from the northwest which they supposed to be Leichhardt's Skull Creek. They were mistaken and Murray's comment that, I suspect that in crossing and recrossing we got off the main creek of the Isaacs onto a tributary, seems to be a comment made after the facts became evident rather than at the time. They were, in fact, on what is now called Denison Creek and the sandy tributary was probably Nebo Creek. Next day the country became more broken to the east and to the north, what Mackay referred to as the Sutter Range was only about 20 miles to the north. They surprised a native family on the 16th of May. On our approach, wrote Mackay, the old man instantly fled, leaving his better half an offspring. When the horsemen rode up the mother was terrified, hugging her young ones with fond affection. To allay her fears, they not only presented brass buttons, a reel of cotton and a needle, but clothed the gin in a shirt at which she was very much astonished. After showing her their compasses, they made signs as if wanting a drink. She in standy pointed towards the river exclaiming, Biani ani, Biani ani, or as Murray recorded it, Biana yana. Bayunda wandi. Starting early next day and approaching the watershed, all were impressed to find country more like any W England than any they had seen since departure. Their elation turned to disappointment when they found several branded trees along the creek the country had already been taken up. 
They knew that some parties had been on the Birdkin Murray recorded on the 11th of April meeting a Mr. Dalrymple who had been out to Mount McConnell in search of country for a syndicate. Dalrymple had pointed out on Leichhardt's map the approximate boundaries of the country claimed. Thus on the 17th of May 19 the explorers consulted as to where to go. On Leichhardt's map, they saw a large tract of unexplored land to the west both Murray and Mackay referred to the west, not east. But they travelled on the 18th of May not west, but north-northwest. Murray, Macrossan and Mackay had ascended a hill the previous day but seen little to guide them. Crossing rough and broken country, they in fact crossed the watershed between Denison Creek and the waters of the Upper Pioneer and, joining a small creek running to the northeast, camped about 4 p.m. In the morning, following it down, they met a larger stream running east which they named Bell's Creek in recognition of the kind treatment given them by John Ball of Port Curtis. Next day, Sunday, they pressed on, discovering the junction of Bell's Creek with another creek from the southeast, together forming an expanse of water 100 yards broad. Macrossan proposed that the river be called the Mackay River and the party agreed. Murray's journal has the river named, not on the 20th of May, the date of discovery, but on the 1st of June on the return journey, adding, it was first suggested by Mackay that it should be called the Murray, thinking that another Murray would be confusing. Andrew Murray maintained that the river was eventually named after George Mackay, John's father, commenting that he believed it should have been called after Macrossan. Mackay's account implies without explicitly stating that the river was named for John Mackay himself in assessing the competing claims. It is worth noting that the Mackay account was published by the Armadale Express in September 1860, only two months after their return even though some of the original text may have been omitted to save space since Murray's text has evidence of revisions such as the use of the name Denison Creek his ideas on the naming may also have been revised. Next day following the river north, a large stream was sighted coming in from the west which today is called the unimaginative Cattle Creek. The explorers dubbed it Taylor's River after W.T. Taylor of Terrible Vale, N.E.W. England. Then the river turned east, it rained and the party shot without effect at the crocodiles on its banks. On the 23rd of May they saw a broad plain stretching to the east, which they called May Plains after the month, and camped on a lagoon near the river which I believe is the one near Branscombe, north of Walkerston. Next day, Queen's birthday, they stayed in camp, resting the horses and repairing pack bags and tattered clothing. Following the river down on the 25th of May, they observed the lagoons, mentioned only by Murray who called them the Anna Branch. A little below where the lagoons joined the river they noted the river was tidal, with mangroves lining the banks and the water salty. As night fell and unable to get fresh water, they returned to the creek which drained the lagoons to camp near today's Mackay District Hospital. The business of marking runs began on the 28th of May, drawing lots for position. Barber and Murray came first, and thus were to take the runs closest to the coast, casting lots for sides. Barber got the north and Murray the south side. Since they needed a central camp for some days, they returned to the lagoon where they had spent the Queen's birthday.
The next lots up river went to Mackay and Macrossan, with Macrossan getting the north side. The days were spent marking on trees the boundaries north and south away from the river, M in a circle to represent Murray and M likewise for Mackay. On the 29th of May, Murray and Barber went as far south as today's Sandy Creek which they named Murray Creek. Mackay also drew a map of the Mackay River, with no instrument to ascertain latitude, he located the mouth between Cape Palmerston and Repulse Bay, in the neighborhood of Slade Point. As the mouth lay only three miles south of Slade Point, he was uncannily close. The weeks of poor food now began to take their toll. The beef ran out and they depended on what they could kill. Ignorant of how to live off the land, they suffered malnutrition where the Aborigines found plenty. On the 31st of May they moved camp delayed a day because of the sickness of Robinson and Duke in order to mark blocks further upriver, including blocks for Hamilton Robinson and, in his absence, Muldoon. Sickness affected Murray, Barber and Macrossan. Only Mackay remained well enough to hold the party together. On the 5th of June while Mackay was helping Macrossan mark his boundary along Taylor's River they encountered a number of blacks who appeared hostile. The white men turned away but hearing COOing all round them and fearing they might be followed back to camp, Mackay discharged one of his barrels loaded with shot. The aborigines disappeared into dense forest. Murray was so sick that on the 12th of June he asked Macrossan and Mackay to kill one of his horses for fresh meat, something both refused to do. They had enjoyed fresh fish from the river only the day before, a day Murray was so sick that he recalled, as for me, it was back to the days of crawling. Duke, too, was in a bad way. He could not swallow the fresh duck that had been shot on the 14th of June. That night the cold was intense yet his only desire was for cold water. He must have drunk quartz. Starting off next morning, Macrossan found it hard to lift him onto his horse, and before long, he fell off according to Murray, Macrossan and Mackay lifted him up, and there was blood coming out from the corner of his mouth. Belly broke, were the last words he uttered and in a few seconds he was dead. Mackay wrote slightly differently, with no mention of blood, mentioning that they waited some time for Duke to recover. When ready to start again, Mackay went to lift him up, but was surprised to find that the stream of life had flowed. Although of a different race from us, he wrote, the poor fellow's death was felt by us all, a degree of feeling that few Europeans expressed for a race often regarded as subhuman. All set to work to dig a decent grave. He is buried on the west bank of the river Isaacs, about 12 miles above the entrance of a large sandy creek coming from the northwest. Murray's account has Denison Creek, a result of revision. With their pleasure at being home bound, thus saddened by the loss of a comrade, they were further depressed next morning to find some of their horses had strayed back towards the previous night's camp. Robinson set off alone to search for them while Macrossan and Mackay broke up camp and prepared for departure. Robinson failed to return and when three o'clock passed, they began to fear for his safety, knowing the blacks to be in the vicinity. That night Macrossan kept firing a gun at intervals but there was no sign of Robinson. After an extremely cold night, Macrossan and Mackay set out in search, 
but soon lost his tracks in the long grass. Macrossan discovered his horse in the afternoon, closely hobbled, about five miles from camp and Mackay located the horses not far away, but there was no sign of Robinson. A second night passed. Macrossan and Mackay went out again to where his horse was found. Seeing the natives had camped their Resendi with still no sign of Robinson, hopes began to fade and they agreed to set off next day. Just as they were preparing to turn in for a restless night's sleep, they heard a faint COOEE near the creek. Went down at once and brought up Robinson, weak, feeble and slightly deranged. All went to bed, thankful to a merciful God who had guided him safely back. Robinson, who had used his boots to dip for water and forgotten to put him on again, was too weak to travel next day, the 19th of June. The extra day's delay proved their first lucky break when Andrew Scott of Dawson River, Tom Ross and William Eraser, survivor of the Horrent Bank massacre, rode up towards evening. Scott was on his way to see Commissioner Wiseman and all agreed to leave next morning for Rockhampton via Collaroy Creek where Dan Connor was setting up a station. Murray commented in his diary on the abuse of the NEW South Wales land system which allowed people like Scott to apply for land off Leichhardt's map without even seeing the country, marking it years later as long as it was completed before the Crown Lands Commissioner inspected it, thus shutting up the land against those who actually went and marked it. Despite these remarks in his journal, the native-born Murray enjoyed the company. What a treat it is, he reflected, for bushmen who travel by instinct for locality to fall in with others who travel through the bush. Except poor Duke, who was dead, and myself, not one of our party had this instinct. As they travelled, Mackay, who had endured with little sickness, now succumbed to a violent attack of fever and ague, his body reacting as the burden of responsibility was lifted. He was barely able to ride, and only the knowledge of natives on their trail kept him going. It was the 23rd of June when they picked up the tracks of Connor's drays, and at sundown reached the site of his future head station. Connor killed a fresh bullock, and the first treat of fresh red meat revived their spirits greatly. Macrossan and Mackay sold their horses to Scott, to be delivered to William Eraser at Rockhampton. The flour 300 to 400 pounds which remained in excess of requirements the party sold to Connor. After resting next day while Scott and Ross went out in search of the land commissioner, the final leg of the journey back to civilization began on the 26th of June, camping the second night with J and C Allingham of NEW England who were still en route north and busy lambing. From them we received every kindness and attention in their power, wrote Mackay. Camping at McCartney's Tulumba station, then being formed, on the 28th of June, the party arrived at Hennings Marlborough after an absence of three months and four days. It certainly seemed that long, but McKay's arithmetic was in error, it was only two months and three days. The rest of the trip to Rockhampton, and then by ship to Brisbane took five days, then on to Sydney, a rough trip on the Wonga Wonga arriving on the 29th of July being a tedious anticlimax. Route taken by Mackay and party in 1860. The hardship and sickness deterred all but Mackay from returning. Mackay persevered, 
entering a partnership with James Starr. He drove the cattle thus acquired Overland in 1861 to establish Greenmount on the block that had fallen to him by lot. Arriving in December 1861, his small party had several months in isolation, anxiously awaiting the time. Arranged for the presto to bring up stores. It came in June but, unable to find the river and losing a man named Roberts who went off with the natives when they landed. Captain Hart returned to Rockhampton. Mackay was becoming desperate and, attempting to travel overland, was surprised to meet Richard Spencer who was just setting up Mount Spencer Station and also expecting stores by the presto. Together they finally located the vessels south of the Mackay River, waiting in the mouth of Sandy Creek. Mackay learned the bad news that his financial affairs were in great trouble. He had not understood the legal implications of the documents he had signed. To provide security to obtain cattle to stock Greenmount, Mackay had signed a transfer to James Starr. When his partner became insolvent, the transfer was executed and the property taken by his creditors. For a time Mackay travelled the west of the colony, droving cattle until it became clear that he had no hope of regaining ownership of Greenmount. He then returned to the sea, succeeding in the occupation he had longed to join. His experience covered the breadth of the Pacific, including a wide variety of ships and commands. The dangers he encountered and the isolation were sufficient for Lingroth to conclude that Red Mackay as he knew him had died sometime in the 1870s. Two feet Mackay's career included a short involvement in the Queensland Kanaka trade and the well-known incident at Santa Cruz, but he should not be confused with Captain John Mackay, master of the para in the 90s, a confusion which has served to denigrate his reputation for fair treatment of all men and to cause distress to his descendants. Point two two Mackay's fifty-year career as a mariner and administrator is a subject deserving of thorough study, one beyond the scope of this paper. In researching this account of the Mackay expedition, I had the good fortune to read the copy of the journal, in Mackay's own hand, signed. John Mackay, Master Mariner, Sydney, July 16, 1878.23 I was completely unaware of any discrepancy in the account, and plotted out the route of the expedition, estimating the distance and direction of travel. When I read other accounts I was surprised to find latitudes and latitude freely quoted, and entirely at variance with the route I had plotted. I now began to look much more critically at the various accounts. Even the 1878 version has a number of interesting differences from the 1860 and Murray accounts, although the route is in complete agreement. The discrepancies are more significant than the differences I have pointed out between Murray's and McKay's 1860 accounts. There is also a mistake in dating through dating their depart. Tour from Marlborough as April 29th, a Sunday. The previous day's entry stated that they camped at Marlborough until Monday the 30th of April as in the other accounts. As the mistake continues to the end, one is led to suppose that in the original version of the journal there were no dates at all, merely an entry for each successive day. In the rest of the paper I have converted the 1878 dates to allow for the error. The 1878 version also omits details of the journey to Rockhampton, 
probably to save the effort of transcribing what was not exploring, however interesting. The editor of the Armadale Express had abbreviated it in 1860 for the same reason. There is a daily account of the weather in the 1878 version and much more comment about the mosquitoes and sandflies. The Armadale Express editor may have omitted this to save repetition although giving the impression that there was no amendment. Alternatively, Mackay gave the editor a copy with some details omitted, or finally they may be later editions. Other differences are more interesting. The reference to Apis Creek on the 2nd of May is omitted. Perhaps Mackay realized they had misidentified it. More importantly, Mackay now refers on 7 and the 8th of May, and later, to Denison Creek, clearly a revision of the original journal written while the party still thought they were on the Isaacs. W.E. noted earlier that Murray also allowed himself the benefit of hindsight. For the 9th of May, rather than simply observing native fires, there was a face-to-face -face encounter, but, seeing we were not inclined to trouble them, they had a good look at ourselves and horses, then disappeared. The account of the meeting with the djinn on the 12th of May is practically identical, but for odd words which one might expect to vary in deciphering an aging and battered journal. The decision to strike towards the coast was altered to the 17th of May, omitting the observation of marked trees. In the naming of the Mackay River, the others, gladly assented, rather than merely, agreed. A curious variation appears for the 22nd of May, in which Cattle Creek was not named Taylor's River, but Sutherland Creek in honor of Mrs. Sutherland Esk. Of Tamworth NSW, or perhaps MS. Sutherland, had McKay's pastoral experiences made him less favorably inclined towards Taylor. The next interpolation adds on the 25th of May, at 2 p.m. came on a chain of lagoons and observed as we traveled along they formed a semicircle. He concludes the day by recording that on reaching camp, each man on unsaddling his horses, rolled himself in his blanket and went to sleep oblivious of any danger there might be. The entry for the 26th of May refers to their returning to the camp of the 24th, but because of the one-day error in dating mentioned near her. Mackay took this to mean the camp of the 25th of May, true date. This mistake may be the source of the belief that Mackay camped several days near present-day Mackay. The words, the position of the mouth, of the river, I made from a doubtful observation to be in, south latitude, are also an 1878 edition. Where the events do not differ, the actual words often do, so that the 1878 version is often like a new composition. The Aborigines became more aggressive, as noted once before. The natives, previously described as hostile looking on the 5th of June, become a large number of blacks armed with spears, and Mackay fired several shots rather than a single shot. On the 10th of June, Duke is credited with believing the natives were planning an attack. The 1878 version also adds an explanation of the effect that illness had on the keeping of watch, on which the 1860 version made no comment. On the other hand, it omits reference to marking out blocks for Muldoon. The discovery of the lagoon near Mount Spencer and Duke's death agree in detail, but for referring to Denison Creek rather than the Isaacs. Similarly with Robinson's disappearance, 
The details agree but the wording differs. The additional comment, to our mortification and disappointment, the morning of a dreary day broken no sign of our lost comrade, sounds more like an armchair reflection than a daily journal written on the spot. An addition which is hard to account for is the comment that all we had now left of our original provisions consisted of about 10 pounds sugar and about 20 pounds of what had once been flour, but which now presented a hard and sour mess of something resemble ng a mass of pipe clay. Murray's account records selling 300 to 400 pound of flour to Connor. Perhaps indeed some of the flour was water affected, but while they were indeed malnourished there is HTTLE evidence to believe they were starving too. The 1878 account ends on the 22nd of June at Coleroy, mentioning only that they arrived at Marlborough on the 3rd of July after an absence of nearly three months. I had originally intended to set out the various versions side by side. However, the 1892 publicadon faithfully used by Henry Ling Roth is so radically different that it has little in common with the three accounts already discussed. Carrot since the 1892 version is the one well known, being quoted widely, it is less necessary to go into detail but simply to indicate how it diverges. No detail is given of the journey to Rockhampton, but the arrival is given as the 2nd of March, departing on the 16th of March, exactly a month early. This month is later caught up, after making camp from April 10th to 14, washing and mending clothes cleaning firearms etc. We are told, from this date to May 12th a portion of our journal is missing, and the remains so obliterated as to make it quite unintelligent. So far as memory serves me we experience no incident worthy of note, and camped often, in consequence of wet weather. This restores the approximately correct dating, but there is still several days discrepancy in the dates for major events. One might wonder whether the journal was in such a bad state that, 21 years later, this was but a mistake caused by the lack of dating of the original. That seems to be dispelled when the 1860 entry for the 16th of April. We left N.E.W. England in expectation of furnishing ourselves with every instrument requisite, in Rockhampton, in which we were greatly disappointed, being unable to procure even a pair of dividing compasses, is compared with the 1892 statement that they were equipped with two ordinary compasses, a prismatic compass, sextant and artificial horizon. The significance of this change lies in the addition of about 10 latitudes fixed by use of these supposed instruments, plus longitudes based on dead reckoning. These fixes are the main device to give credence to an amended journey in which the explorers reach the birdkin itself, fully a quarter mile wide of sand between the banks, but are disappointed to find that all the country seemed to have been taken up. Some of the significant positions include latitude 22 degrees 10, on the 1st of April when a large creek is noted joining from the northeast, which although differing from the position assigned to it on the map, I supposed to be Denison Creek. On the 3rd of April their position was 21 degrees 40 feet and longitude 148 degrees 33 feet at noon. By the 6th of April they were at 20 degrees 50 feet south and 147 degrees 45 feet east, good travelling, and on the 8th of April at 20 inches 20 south, their most northerly point. 
All this appears to give credence to their having followed the valley of the Bowen down to its junction with the Birdkin. Coming back presented problems for there was rugged country and any detailed account might prove incorrect. The missing month makes the transition to the point at which the explorers cross the divide at the head of Denison Creek into the headwaters of the Pioneer. The name Bell's Creek is omitted and the detail is so sufficiently vague that some have incorrectly imagined Mackay and his party made the rugged descent of the Yungala Range 50 miles west of Mackay. Carrot Carrot no mention is made of the naming of Cattle Creek, either as Taylor's River or as Sutherland Creek. Detail is included to have the explorers reach the coast on the 23rd of May, for which the entry reads, accompanied by Barber and Macrossan, I proceeded at 9 a.m. to the coast in order to observe the latitude of the mouth of the river, but having to cut through dense scrub, it was 3 p.m. when we reached the beach, from which I observed that the